We've had Me Too, and now we have this dumb fuck, Doug Ford. Already he is changing Ontario for the worst, reverting the sex ed curriculum to a time when Napster was all the rage, cancelled increased education on Indigenous issues in schools. What's next? Birthdays? He needs to be stopped, and we need to move beyond awareness. We need fucking action. Support the work being done by us, your resident feminist diehard bitches, for initiatives like Orders Up, our clapback against the restaurant industry's culture of sexual harassment, and support a podcast that has your feminist back. Check us out at patreon.com forward slash bad and bitchy to support independent intersectional feminist media as we form the resistance against Doug Ford. Stay woke, y'all. Stay bitchy. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. And uh, you guys, again, the band's all here. And it's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Totes. Um, how are your weeks? Good. Yeah. Uh, I uh, got tipsy and spontaneously uh, purchased uh, four improv classes. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> I started uh, Improv 101 on a lark. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's Very fun. nice. On a lark. So you've had one session. Yeah. And how was that? It was like so fun. It was actually just like. I don't know. It was in, slightly intimidating and like nerve wracking. And we were uh, what with a friend and we were both like definitely anxious going in. And you're like, feel like you're also like a kid again. There are all these, it's very games and play oriented, which is cool. But like when you don't know the rules, whatever mm-hmm. else, there's always like that. But everybody in the class was just very friendly. Great. Like just, it was just so relaxed. It was really cool to kind of do something uh, as cliche as it sounds, outside of your comfort zone. Uh, <laughs> Look at you growing as an individual. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Erica, how was your week? Pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Awesome. I know. I don't remember why, but I, I remember <laughs> that I was like, oh, this is yeah, a good week. I, you were in a good mood all week online, which is primarily how we all interact. Right. Exactly. Um, I know. I was just like, look at me taking it, taking life. Great for you. (laughs) Woo. Um, And I got my hair done, so I'm happy. Listen, it looks amazing. I feel more like myself now. Can you please fix your mic situation? (laughs) The mic keeps falling and she keeps like leaning her head down to like reach it. And then it's just like, she's like almost (laughs) under the table. Um, yeah, so I have been kind of going through this like weird thing the past couple of weeks. Um, I woke up on a Saturday a couple of weeks ago, opened up my Facebook and this girl I went to high school had died. Um, she was lovely. She Mm -hmm. has a 10 year old son. And I was like, oh, this is so awful. Like we used to hang out, um, in like the first, second year university a bit. And I know a lot of friends, I know a lot of people who are still like very close with her from high school. And uh, so I read the the news story, which was Mm. weird because it doesn't usually come up in a news story. And uh, she'd been in a car accident. I was like, oh, that's that's really sad. Um, But then I heard rumblings from people back home that, oh, like 
it was being treated as a suspicious death. What? Um, and so I was like, oh, like that's like even more stressful because like then it becomes this thing where like, oh, like, yeah, okay, someone dies in a car accident all the time. It's mm-hmm. shitty. But, you know, that's just kind of what happens in life. And then it was suspicious. I'm like, oh, like these aren't the types of things that you think happen to people you know. Mm-hmm. Um, especially since she wasn't involved in any nefarious activities or whatever. Um, turns out yesterday, um, a guy was charged with second degree murder. Holy shit. Um, in connection with her death. And uh, it seems as though she was she was found in a ditch and he was in the car um, and survived. And she, she died in the hospital. Um, but uh, Erica, this made me think of something you'd posted on your Facebook this week about how women are really killed like by people they know in their homes and a lot of the time by someone who what they were romantically involved with Mm -hmm. and this was that type of situation they i guess had been dating and i don't know what the situation was if they had broken up or were in the middle of a breakup and she was trying to break up with him and um they it got physical and she like was either pushed or jumped out of a moving vehicle oh wow yeah yeah, and she had, like, other wounds on her. From, from before. From before. Okay. So I don't know if it was, like, yeah. they had it had always been type of an abusive relationship or whatever. But, yeah, it really made me think of that thing that you had posted. Yeah. Yeah. Women are more likely, I think, any, to be killed in the home, I think, than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a UN study found that the number killed by a partner or relative is rising globally. About 50,000 women were killed worldwide last year by a current or former partner or family member. So that's about 137 per day or six per hour. That's so fucked up. Six per hour? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Um, So uh, I I was talking with a a friend of ours from high school about it, and he was saying, he pulled up his photo, and he's like, oh, he's just a real estate agent. He looks like a normal guy. Wow. And I what was does like, that mean? I was like, yeah, but they always look like normal guys. Also, his, him, like, he also has like crazy eyes. Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll show you guys a picture and he doesn't look, um, he, he, he was off to me and I'm not going to say anything about her and their relationship, but he looks like a douche. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but yeah, it could be anyone. It could be anyone. It could be. I don't think he looks off. He just looks like a dude. Um. Anyway, the point is, is that like these things can happen to anyone, you know, regardless of how unrealistic the situation seems like it could be. Or how like far off or statistical it may be, too. Yeah. Because we like think of these things now in our data driven world is that we kind of take out the actual humanity of it and just think of people in blocks or 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 in a statistical way. It's not like individualized type of experiences. And abuse is also something that you try very hard to make it look normal. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that this guy seems normal. It's that the point the that masking is part of the point of it hey guys it's erica i'm just stepping in here to provide an update on the story you're about to hear 
And the story has to do with a restaurant's name. Um, They have since changed the name. And we just wanted to um, recognize that and say good thank you that you did that and hopefully this will be step one to perhaps a different course of action in general. Also I want to say thank you to everybody who listened, everybody who shared our Instagram story and everybody who commented and supported um, the effort to change the name. And um, I also want to say personally to all those people I talked to about this issue, shout out to you. Thank you for your thoughts. You guys, when you when you talk to me, I actually do listen. And um, I hope that uh, this is satisfactory. However, I do know that there are others who I know you guys have talked to me who think that changing the name is not... Um, good enough, basically. And I see where you're coming from. I hear you. I understand. I understand that um, as one person told me earlier today, some of us don't get a second chance. And mostly people of color don't get a second chance. So to the ladies of the newly named um, restaurant on Somerset, given that you have a second chance, please take it to learn and grow beyond your inner circle or your own ideas of who you are within the community you serve. So I just wanted to, so now I've taken up like two minutes and 20 seconds of your time So thank you, and I hope that you guys enjoy this discussion that's coming up. So let's move on to This Week in Feminism. I think we want to do something a little bit different. Um, We do want to talk about a study, of course. Um, But there are a couple of things that happened in Ottawa this week that we want to kind of raise awareness of and kind of make more relevant to other people outside the like very small niche community that it affects. Um, so the first is a story about a restaurant that is opening in Chinatown. It's going to be a diner um, and a wine bar or a cocktail bar and a cafe. And uh, basically, they it's called the restaurant's called Tuboku. And I was like very excited because I walk by it all the time. Every time I come to Erica's house here, and. Uh, so I was very excited because I like new restaurants and it looked has a cute branding and whatever. You just took me to a new bakery and now my croissant like thing it's, <laughs> it's over like I had a system <laughs> and now it's over. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, um, don't be. <laughs> but then but then our friend Bailey was like, "Oh, have you heard about this place? This place has a very problematic name." And we were like, "What are you talking about?" So apparently Tuboku is a reference to a quote in Full Metal Jacket, the movie, the Stanley Kubrick film. And the scene in which the phrase comes up uh, involves a Vietnamese sex worker who is there with the Viet Cong and she's being sold 
to her services are being sold to a bunch of, I guess, American soldiers. Um, and basically, um, this black man, quote unquote, wins. And there's a racial slur against him. And then basically they say, oh, well, he's too Boku, basically implying that he has a very big penis and she doesn't want to have sex with him or whatever because his penis is just too big. And it's just very racist and very misogynist and deeply uncomfortable um, for anyone who has seen this recently or and it just is like it's not a scene that stands up um so we uh the podcast instagram account commented on the uh instagram account of tuboku this new place opening in ottawa and asked hey like just wanted to see if whether or not you knew that this was a reference also to full metal jacket and they said yes absolutely we do we know it's out there but, you know, it's not something that um, speaks to us. Um, it, we just found ourselves saying the phrase Tuboku a lot when we were eating. And so we just wanted to use that phrase. Ha ha. And so it kind of went on from there. And we were like, well, like, that's privilege to be able to just kind of ignore the racist and misogynist undertones of this situation, given the fact that when you search Tuboku in Google, that's the first thing that comes up is this full metal jacket scene on YouTube. So um, we kind of commented back and waited a couple days for them to respond and they didn't. They just kind of left it um, while some other people also commented. And then we put it on Twitter and our Instagram with outlining the whole situation and how basically Tuboku, the restaurant was completely dis- um, dismissive of any concerns that anyone had with their name and it kind of blew up, but we, we do want to kind of address it here just to give a little bit more nuance and give a little bit more context to why the whole situation is problematic in the first place. Uh, so Amy, I don't know if you want to, you had a lot of thoughts about this. Yeah. I mean, so I think the thing that's um, really frustrating is, yeah, it's such a privileged response, but I also feel like it's really solidified for me how they just completely don't understand the community specifically that they are coming into. Um, it's um, it, I actually didn't say where it was going. Yeah, so it, you, so the space that they're in, and, and it's in the neighborhood I live in, so I pass by there twice a day to and from work and have been watching them do these renos. It used to be a South Asian grocery store right on that corner. Been there for de- decades, I presume, Cashy Food Center. And um, really beloved, they would like, you know, they made food there, they catered, but it was also like a little grocer. And um, they were in a neighborhood, I mean, it's Chinatown, but in Ottawa, because of the um, significant population of Vietnamese refugees who came after the war that Full Metal Jacket is, uh, I guess, a commentary on, uh, whatever. Um, but v- Chinatown is, is largely um, populated by Vietnamese people and full of Vietnamese restaurants. And th- that's the neighborhood they're, they're walking into. So they're taking the place of a, you know, um, brown business brown owned business and surrounded by vietnamese restaurants and putting up so like they're very much entering a 
you know, racialized community. I don't know mm-hmm. that you can even say that Chinatown is not that. Um, and, you know, I mean, we've talked about it before. I was like in when we were talking about the Ottawa Magazine article recharacterizing the area of Chitalia. Um, there are a lot of white people who would love for this neighborhood to change in nature. And, you know, when I... What, Chiboku was starting to do their renos, I was a little bit worried that it would be, I mean, it's definitely a gentrifying influence. And in the community as a white owned business owned by two white women um, who are both coming, I think, from the food industry um, already in Ottawa from very established restaurants in um, more gentrified neighborhoods and are now coming in to open their own business in Chinatown. All of that, I think, is like really relevant so I, I found that troubling that they had no awareness and no like pers- perspective on who they were in this space that they were entering into. I don't know. It gives me a lot of misgivings about other positions that they might have or how they view themselves relative to the community um, if they're not willing to sort of step up at least to make an acknowledgement or be accountable in terms of their name. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, uh, the owner of Mushu Ice Cream had mm-hmm. a great comment about the history of the neighborhood and how it was, even though it... You should ho- just read it in full. Oh. I think it's really well done. Okay. And uh, it's, a, it's, an, it's a lesson that people can... Uh, there's a lot of lessons, frankly, you can take away from this. So I'm not sure of the name of the owner. Do you know the name of the owner? Um, so Mushu Ice Cream, uh, which is another women-owned business in Ottawa, uh, made a comment after um, the Bad and Bitchy account basically brought it up. And she, he, she, I she, think it's a she, she. yeah, women-owned business. Um, having never watched Full Metal Jacket before, I had been happily following the progress of another women-owned business. Discovering the comments in this post has been a shock. I can't imagine the feeling of hurt and betrayal your neighbors would feel when they discover the popular spot in their neighbor in their neighborhood stood for something so demeaning in popular culture. Women to women and business to business, we are saying to you, please change your name. Adding to the issues brought up by commenters above, you must remember that your restaurant is situated in a neighborhood, not just a piece of real estate. This neighborhood specifically came to prominence through the hard work of Vietnamese refugees. A problematic lack of, of sensitivity to Western privilege and Vietnam's history of foreign occupation is reflected by the name you have chosen. The way that the soldiers find easy humor in this broken English and French phrase is almost an ironic parallel. Wouldn't you rather proudly stand for progress rather than hide behind an inside joke? I understand the experience of opening that the experience of opening a restaurant feels all-encompassing. Time and money are tight, and you've already sent, set everything up around the name of your business. I promise you it's worth the effort. You may not have known your impact before, but now you do. Don't let all the hard work you've put in thus far stand for something that you and your neighbors can't be proud of. At the end of the day, it's your food and service that you want to stand out. 
Building a new business is hard stuff, so please reach out if you ever want to talk about it. Bad and Bitchy Pod, thanks for starting the conversation. Just excellent. I, I just, I don't know what else to add, honestly, after that. Yeah, it's a very measured approach. Um, a lot of people who commented on that same post were quite angry and definitely not as um, well spoken as that. And even on Twitter, the conversation has been a lot of anger, um, a lot of like, oh, well, I'm not going to tell people to go here. A lot of like, a lot of things coming from like a negative kind of standpoint. And like, yes, you can be mad about it, but I think that there's also like a measured anger to try to make a point rather than just like completely dis- disregard them. I think they're, they're, they just don't know. Oh, they know. Oh, no, 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 they no, 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 hold on. no, 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 sorry, they sorry. Know. No, no, no. What I, when I, sorry. What I mean is like, like they don't know is like, they don't know how to take a business into an existing neighborhood that, whereas like if they're already in other gentrified neighborhoods and that's where they hang out. Yeah. I don't know. Who cares? Fuck them. I mean, I honestly just, so what? I don't need to go to their restaurant. They, they should change the name because it's offensive and it's like taking up a corner lot on Booth and fucking Somerset. And I don't want to look at it. And I'm sure other people, when they like see that, they're not going to want to look at it. So change the name. And if people think that that's enough accountability, they can go ahead and go there. But I don't think I will. I It's reminded me of like how participating in any of those types of spaces is necessarily like destructive and i Mm. and i just don't think it's worth it and it's not it's not like they're coming in with like a do no harm approach they are coming in and like actively knocking shit over yeah i don't know i don't owe them my business and this is the thing that fucking pisses me off about small business owners and our cult of business I don't like I get it. You know, it's nice. I also have dreams of opening a cute little. I was really hoping it would be a cafe bookshop because that's what I would open. <laughs> um, and that's where I would with hang weed? out because I feel like with weed. Sure. Why like, not? I, I think that is a great <laughs> idea. But like, so I would like to own a business. I think we all <laughs> think that's like a cool thing yeah. to do. And it's and I shop local and I try to like go to, you know, a lot of these places and and you know like props to them i know it's work but it's not like you don't get carte blanche to do whatever the fuck you want because it's a pet project and i don't have to and if it is and that's what you want it to be your own personal pet project i don't know you shit but i think i think the the point is that like they like yes chinatown is probably going to be the next area that gentrifies and i think they did went about it the wrong way yeah um if you look at another place that's relatively new in chinatown roku mm-hmm. um, which has great food it's new it's a bar and restaurant but i think they integrated into the community as sure, best but as roku is also not w- owned by white people sure but it's still a, well, a certain gen- kind of gentrification I, I think there's a this is sort of what we talked about last week on the pod like a roku is like people more rooted in the community trying to take a mo- a, a so-called modern take on the tr- on a, tra- a tradition that they have an ownership stake in well so when when an asian like you know I, i'm pretty sure they're vietnamese and they're doing a spin on some vietnamese food yep. and and it's like a hip young asian spa I've, that's that's different when you're in chinatown coming in from that perspective and uh, I think they, you're right, yeah. they have been more respectful. 
But there's just something about white-owned businesses coming into these spaces. Like, if you're going to do it, I think you need to do so much more work than that. Um, and I think you have to be, um, I mean, I don't know what they've done in terms of reaching out to their neighbors and other mm-hmm. community stores that share a block with them. Um, I don't, I don't know, get the sense that they've done much. Um, I don't get the sense reading their website that the business is anything but an inside joke to them. That yeah. they want to be so, like they want a some funny place to you know they they have a quirky sense of humor. It yeah. is very individualistically driven, and if you want to do that, I get. I mean, you know, do it. But I again, I don't owe you shit. I'm not going to applaud you for opening a business owned by two women in Chinatown if you've done nothing for the community you're entering into. You can open it. Good luck. But I'm not. I don't. I I don't think like it's. You're not a fucking martyr. Well, this you is, know what I this mean? Is like, the thing. like, I think that um, that is exactly the difference between evolution in culture and cultural appropriation. So that difference between um, where the intent comes from and how it's expressed is the difference between those two. I, I personally think um, they said they knew. They said they they knew of the reference. Mm-hmm. They said they knew that where it comes from. It's just that they didn't take it that way. So too bad for you, everyone else. Too bad for everyone yeah, else because it it's works. all about them and centering yeah. their own whiteness and their own womanhood within their whiteness. Because see, this is this is the thing: is that I get the sense that because they're two women, they feel some sort of. Um, leeway to behave this way because you know they are somehow um underdogs anyway if you know Mm -hmm. what i mean Mm -hmm. so i and and there is this tradition in which um white women will take over spaces and will use their womanhood as a shield in for instead of mm-hmm. a shield to criticism. Mm-hmm. And I, well, number one, I think that's happening here. Number two, I know for a fact they've had people tell them, yo, this would n- this is not a good idea. This is where it comes from. Uh, a Google search is there. Like, who doesn't search their, their business oh, I, I, I mean, they, they know. You know. They, they know. know. They've admitted that they know. It's the first thing you find. There's right. a fucking urban dictionary but for the But the other expression. thing, too, is that the fact that they know and they still yeah. went ahead with it is everything. And I'm ta- I don't want people to to cast them as the poor little ignorant yep. girls because that's what happens. It's like the Ivanka, Ivanka Trump, Melania Trump. Melania Trump is the poor little rich wife and Ivanka Trump is somehow, I don't know, some some someone who's been co-opted by her father. It's this idea that white women should be protected by any means necessary from any sort of criticism whatsoever. So... Um we received a lot of very positive feedback from our Instagram post. Um, but there's always, of course, one asshole who wants to tell you that you are out of line. Um, unfortunately, this person who decided to comment uh, is someone that I know and is a woman of color um, and said, 
That's unfortunate. Yeah. And said, wow, way to attack two women trying to start a business in a neighborhood that needs it before they even open. You guys have gone too far. Ottawa deserves better than you. P.S. You guys lost my follow. The next time you guys want to call yourself feminist, maybe think twice. This is not the first time I've been disappointed by your host's hypocrisy. Well, and it's it's just that definition of feminism is having to support anything yes. done by women. It's just such a like which, bunk idea, which is flawed logic, because by that logic, if like, let's say in Ottawa Center, there was a conservative woman running for office and the NDP and the liberals were both men, we would have to vote for the conservative, even though we don't agree with their ideals, especially if she promotes anti women policies. Well, ex- yeah. So basically what this person is saying is that, well, we should support the Ontario PC female cabinet ministers just because they're women, mm-hmm. even if they promote anti like policies that will um, th- that will be bad for women. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. That's dumb as fuck. A, lo- a lot of people do share this view, and I feel yeah. like I've I people use it all the time on Twitter. If you ever like yes. say something like that's like critical of a woman, then they'll be like, "Oh, well, you're not a mm-hmm. feminist," and and all of this shit. Um, I feel like that's happened to me a few times where people have thrown that at me. It's like, no, like first of all, you know, these people are not. It's not just they're they're first of all they're they're racist. They're stepping into a, a space and and in a not just it gentrifying it. They're perpetuating colonialism in the choice of the name, but also like there is a like the the film the portrayal of the the sex worker is like from such a misogynistic standpoint. Like all of that, like it's layered. So like even like even if you were like look like. Yeah, so I just like want, just like as women to like have that be part of the sense of humor in your inside joke is also gross. Like I don't yeah, know, are they yeah. feminists? Like what do I owe them? Like But like <laughs> by this logic, like we should support women even if they're racists. It's fine. They're women. No, okay. I mean absolutely not. No. There's yeah. no world in which and like I, I don't know, and it pisses me off when people um jump to jump to that and I, like I mean, what intersectionality means is fully on display in this conversation of how these things interplay and the experiences of uh, the Vietnamese woman in the depicted in the film is like one place. The the way these white women are participating in this space is another example of how intersectionality is at play. And also my response to it, like I'm like, I'm really like not here for anything around like to me my identity is almost like race, like I more concerned with race issues mm-hmm. than I am with like, you know, women owning businesses being a thing. Yeah. So I agree. I'm trying I, to capture this. I would like really to sure. second that. Yeah. And I would like to say that for me, who's obviously visibly like black as fuck. Um, that's not, that's, I, I love it. Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I am so tuned into race. Yeah. You know, so like, I get it. Yeah. Uh, Is that I worry about, I'm more concerned about race than gender sometimes because even within the same gender, I have to worry about white women. Yeah. That's, that's the reality of it. 
And so race becomes that thing you that that bubbles up more Mm -hmm. than than gender. If you're only one thing, then you only have to worry about one thing. Like, that's the thing. Well, and just because historically we've like seen how white women want to be as close to power as possible and they replicate structures of colonialism and oppression. Not obviously, we're not talking about all white women where you just mean like as 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 thinking. And we see that statistically in terms of how people vote. Uh, We see that in the history of the suffragist movement. Like, I mean, that's just the certain perspective of feminism has been to to um, look the other way yeah. at other forms of oppression. And so if you are racialized, we are like, I'm very um, like alert and alive to that out of like self-preservation. White women are <laughs> the ones who, who spread. There was a there was a piece in New York Times a couple weeks ago about the women of the far right. No, the women of I don't know, like not white supremacy the women of the white women Mm. of white supremacy and they actively spread and promoted tenets of white supremacy and subjugation and oppression in their communities they Mm -hmm. were the ones who used to police who was white and who wasn't so i mean this idea that they were just somehow you know forced into white supremacy by a patriarchal system is bullshit and that's the thing, like, white women are only one, like, basically one chromosome away from absolute power. <laughs> so, so they're like, <laughs> they're like, yeah, to white supremacy. I mean, and I, and that lean in sort of feminism, that corporate feminism just totally underpins that, 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 well, we're so close to power. And like, I feel like some of them use feminism to to vault themselves into a powerful position, Mm -hmm. so that they can do so that they can be that powerful. Yeah, all the time. Um, One kind of area that we didn't talk about, um, but was raised to me um, through Instagram. So I'm just going to read the about page of uh, Tuboku's website. (laughs) So it reads. Tuboku is a cafe during the day and a fancy diner with a sense of humor at night. We're doing seasonal food in an environment that feels like home, but really seasonal. Not just for vegetables, but for how we feel. Yes, beautifully delicate asparagus salads in the spring, but also hot dogs and Coors Light in the summer. And we'll have the most deliciously self-destructive things in the depths of winter. Mid-February, just melt the cheese directly into our mouths. We'll tell you when we've had enough. But also vegetables. And tartare. We'll always have tartare. We like what we like. Come see if you like it too. Who wrote this copy? Because it's trash. It's not good. It is trash. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. So we got a message from um, a burlesque dancer in Ottawa. And she says, uh, can we acknowledge the inherent fat shaming in their website mm-hmm. copy? Referring to food as self-destructive mm-hmm. is not only entirely factually incorrect, it's food moralizing, which remains to this day a powerful oppressive tool that is weaponized against all of us, but fat people especially. The idea that foods exist on a moral scale and only thin people are entitled to eat th- to, mm-hmm. to things that get called bad or guilty contributes to disordered eating and self-harm in all kinds of people. This is a harmful business. Yeah, oh, that was a wonderful quote. Oh, that's a wonderful comment. Yeah. Even I was like, 
I was enlightened by that comment. Yeah. 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 Because hearing their description, I had read before, I was like, it sounds off, but I can't like really put my finger on why. Yeah. 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 And to and to be honest, I mean, first of all, great quote. I I just our comment like I felt like I got, you know, opened up by that. Um, The idea that and it's this good girl thing, too, with the hot dogs and the Coors Light. Mm. It's like, well, we can be down with the guys, too. We're Mm, not just like cool girl. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 There's so many yeah. layers to this. Yeah. There's so much, much like internalized oppression in there. Like, I just, it's just so silly. Like, if you want to eat like that, eat at home. Like, why, how is this a business? <laughs> Go to the cottage. If you want to come to this uh, business on this very co- highly coveted street corner that we managed to scoop up because we have so much money. Like, these people clearly are coming in with a fair. They've well, been doing these renos for like what feels like a hundred years. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not as enraged, which is odd. Maybe I'll get there soon. Hold on. No. (laughs) So I also wanted to talk about a situation that happened at a board meeting that I went to this week. So the Ottawa Women's March is in the midst of their planning for 2019. And Erica and I were invited to attend their recent board meeting. Erica was unfortunately unable to attend. So I uh, attended and reported back to her on what happened um i'm not going to really get into the logistics of the meeting itself even though that i found them very frustrating i did want to kind of speak to an issue that we've raised a few times here on the podcast if you've been listening for a while uh last january so january 2018 we did eric and i did a, a micropod which is like 10 minutes on a topic and then that's it uh, about the women's march in ottawa and uh, so if you haven't listened to that, I occur- encourage you to go and do so. Um, but basically, like, while we believe that um, marching and protests are good forms of activism, the activism doesn't stop there at the march or at the protest. It's an ongoing fight. And that's kind of just been a criticism that we've we've had of the Women's March in general, particularly as you get high turnout for these events um, and a lot of people attending to post on Instagram and what I call Instagram feminism just to be performative in their aspect. And of course, you know, a march or a protest is performative, but the whole purpose is not to post hashtag content for your followers. But uh, there was a question posed to the the co-leads of the Women's March and I guess to kind of the more board in general who people who hold positions of power on the table about um well erica it's a question erica asks often when will the women's march stop centering its movement around whiteness and the question in the room wasn't that specific question it was around whether or not uh the march was going to be for women's rights or for feminism as the the questioner asked um, felt those things were two different things. Um, and But I think ultimately the person meant, you know, is this going to be centered around whiteness? And it, it no, no one, none of the people who were co-leads or ha- on the board in positions of power had an answer. And that was problematic to me. And I think a lot of people in the room 
though I also don't think a lot of people in the room understood the question in the same way I did. Um, so when I was talking to Erica about this later, she was like, oh, right, of course, this, again, we're here. Yeah, and I, sorry for them, but I ran into a couple of people on the board of the Women's March in an event and basically asked, I didn't basically, I did ask them that question and they didn't answer me either. And I'm like, well, you know, if you don't have an answer for this or you don't know how to talk around this, then why are you leading the Women's March? Yeah, I mean... In Ottawa. It's going to be a question... It's a question they received after the last Women's March, which I think forced them to change the makeup of their board a little bit. But I think of the 10 positions of power, only two of them are women of color. One... Yeah. And one of them's like... It's so token. It's tokenism. Two out of eight, yes. And they're not. Then the two. You mean two out of ten, right? Sorry, yeah. Or, two out of ten um, are women of color, and they're not the same race. No. Divide and conquer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. It's not like it's not like this isn't like the British modus operandi, <laughs> like. Yeah, and I think that, you the know... The colonizers, sorry, modus operandi. Yeah. The the Ottawa Women's March wants to make their event different this year. I think, I don't know if this is because it's kind of the global event is doing the same thing, but uh, they want to focus on ending violence, violence against women, which, great, awesome. But that's not addressing any of the issues of your board and the fact that Highlighting a main issue at a march isn't helping people get engaged in that topic all year round. So another question that we ask a lot is, okay, cool, you march, and now what? And what is that march turning into, and how are you helping forward the movement of women's rights and feminism, and in this case, helping prolong the discussion about violence against women? As valuable, I think, as it is to have marches, I really do um, believe in those shows of, like, solidarity and expression of activism um, through marching. I think it's, like, totally legitimate. It's just, um, I think, a bit odd to... I'm I'm fine with that theme. Obviously, it's really important, and there's so many, like, intersectional takes you can have on it and, like, ways to discuss it and have different speakers and highlight the issue but there are also a lot of organizations that do that work now and do it probably um i've done it for a long time from different perspectives i'm just like not sure if the women's march is more like people's entry point into activism who actually aren't really engaged on this issue or or connected with these organizations i don't know it just seems like they're well yeah and if if they want to like as if this is the first time we've had a march for women against like against violence against women and absolutely and i think that if they want to address a theme of violence against women they should be talking to the other organizations and bringing them to the table and organizing it together like where is the ottawa coalition and violence against women they're not there Mm -hmm. were they invited i don't know yeah 
I don't understand how you can have a march on vi- violence against women without having indigenous women front and center into the. In oh, this. That, I mean, that's. I huge. really like, don't. If the conf- yeah, no. I, you know what? Mm-hmm. Because if, I. It's not about missing and murdered indigenous women in large, like in in part, and if not in large part, then yeah, I think you're yeah, right. I think yeah, you're ignoring like the ma- the, yeah. the real crisis. Like, I mean, they're all crises. Femicide is a crisis, but in the like in terms of where we are and like highlighting and is- like some of the most like the most egregious examples mm-hmm. that's what it is for sure yeah, yeah. and it's that's more systemic yeah. for them right yeah. because it's not only it's not only intimate partner violence we're talking about violence yeah. from the state yeah. from police from child welfare yeah from totally. that like to me i don't understand a women's march that and this is how it centers itself around whiteness yeah. because a through exclusion and then they exclude you in the beginning and then reintroduce you as a fucking token. Hmm. Like that's how it's done. I don't, I I'm okay. Marches are fine. As long as that's not your only hustle. Like if that's your, the only thing you're doing, then it just becomes something you just do um perfunc- like in a perfunctory manner it's it means nothing if okay so we're going to mark this yearly it's you know this march okay so what are you doing in between the marches are you reaching out to the people like you say who have done that work are you building a coalition of a community where you all can either um um, do fundraising or commu- or, or, other, small or other small actions yeah. throughout the year. What are you doing? Because if that's what you're doing, then this isn't going to be nothing but an Instagram party. I just don't understand where this goes. It just doesn't seem to go anywhere. And that is my number one. I will say this, and I find this different. Correct me if I'm wrong, Amy, because I feel like you were probably in the States and have seen some more of the grassroots action. Um but Canada has a systemic way of attacking problems. It's like, okay, so we have this march once a year and it's here. So we start planning for it here. Mm-hmm. So we start doing this for it here. And it's very, it's very much um, a process. Whereas I feel like in the States, there's just an awareness that more action is needed than just the bare minimum. To me, a march is a bare minimum. I mean, there are, it's it's just, it's different to have a standing march year to year than marches that respond to issues or moments of crisis. So it's hard to compare. Um, but, you know, I was really involved in the organizing of all the big uh, rallies here in Ottawa and small actions as well for um, Bill, Bill C-51, the... Uh, <laughs> Let's be clear; they have still not repealed the uh, yeah. Full she extent yeah. Of she said that's exactly the promise that was yeah. made, and yeah. it was not kept. Anyway, yeah. liberals. But I mean, that was like an interesting moment of like. I don't think we achieved the thing that we wanted necessarily, but it was a like cross community, cross interest opportunity for people to like do direct action. Um, there were other initiatives in terms of like other sorts of like lobbying initiatives that kind of followed from that, but it was like, 
an important way to underscore that people were upset about this issue uh, enough to march. And we did like so many different rallies in the National Day of Action. And um, and we did one that was um, led by the indigenous community because they were more acutely targeted. But then all the rallies had those aspects of bringing in voices from different communities who were impacted in different ways by that by that legislation. Um, and it, and it hi- I think it really highlighted the issue. And it also the other aspect of marches that is significant is the show of solidarity for the people who are impacted. Right. So like, you know, and that's why there every time that there is something that happens, even in the States or hate crimes that happen here in Canada, why people have rallies of support or vigils, because it it makes a difference to feel seen and to have your community rally around you and 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 give you that strength and support whether it's against islamophobia or against um anti-semitism or or um you know all like all the uh, black lives matter uh rallies that have happened here in canada have all like I, you know it's important to go and attend those things because you are by your presence and participation lending like acting in solidarity and it's very visible and like visible to the community and it's felt and I think people do appreciate that and so but it definitely just seems like you know they're just happy to have people there for whatever reason I think in the first year like the show of um solidarity for women and women acting together like had some Mm -hmm. resonance and like was important in that moment And, and it's important all year round but I think they're almost going out of their way to like make it as broad as possible so by their by that logic therefore saying nothing yeah so i think uh we'll be watching what happens over the next several weeks in advance of the march seven weeks i guess so (laughs) (laughs) i mean i don't hold out much hope to be honest like i i really don't because i don't think that most of the people involved understand exactly what Amy was saying. I just don't. And even if they do, I'm not sure how they know how to organize around it. So uh, finally, um, there's a new StatsCan report um, that says more than 2,000 hate crimes were reported to Canadian police last year, marking a record high since comparable data first became available in 2009. In 2017, Canadians reported 2,073 hate crimes to police services, which is a sharp rise of 47% compared to the previous year. This growth was primarily fueled by Ontario, congratulations fam, uh, which saw the biggest spike in hate crimes with 1,023 incidents, a 67% increase from 2016, with the majority targeting Muslims, Blacks, and Jewish people. Uh, This was followed by Quebec, where hate crimes grew by 50% and largely victimized the Muslim community, um, especially in the month after the Quebec City mosque shooting, which accounted for 26% of anti-Muslim incidents reported in the previous year. Um, StatsCan does say that the data comes with caveats, um, and it's because it's unclear. I mean, they're pretty standard caveats. Uh, because it's unclear whether the spike is due to a rise in incidents or improved reporting in and hate crimes still represent a small overall proportion of crimes accounting for just 0.1% of the 1.9 million non-traffic crimes reported by police. So, uh, Erica, are, are, you, are you surprised? 
No, not really. It's it's pretty much an expectation for me at this point because um, the right is rising. It has risen. The far right has risen. So to fall to see that it's been followed up by incidents is not surprising. Yeah, it's not at all surprising. What I found, um, you know, frustrating is how much, um, you know, people are so reliant on data. Um, I feel like, and we talked a little bit about this last week about the status of women's like view to gender base analysis is like so data, like quantitative data driven. I just want to be like, we don't like, it's unfortunate we need these statistics to be able to like make the argument that hate crimes need like to be strategically addressed by the federal government across the board. But I guess that's what it takes. I mean, props to stats can for like taking a view to this stuff, but it, it is, it is frustrating that you need such harsh statistics to make the argument I mean, that it, NCCM and and so many other ad organizations that are uh, quoted in the article have uh, who are making now a call for a national strategy on hate crimes mm -hmm. have already been been you know making these these asks i don't know how after the mosque shooting um you know there wasn't a response uh, a, a serious response uh, to uh, hate speech and hate crimes I think that should have uh, lit a fire under everybody's ass. And I, I think, uh, un unfortunately, you know, we've all forgotten as a nation that that happened. Or at the least, mm -hmm. it wasn't a moment in the way that um, I think it, it deserved to be like a moment of reckoning for the country. I feel, I feel as though like the media dropped it really quickly. Like national media, kind of. Yeah, I mean, there's still coverage of uh, there was some coverage of the trial, but it should have and and it, it should just be about the trial. But yeah. but but you know, you had like a real inside look into where these people are radicalized online, and this is someone. I mean, we have it like and yeah. and going after those organizations or pulling apart what they're reporting and 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 from a critical view and what you know. Um, folks see on social media from that perspective how the social media policies allow that to happen i think a lot of the stuff that we know we get from u.s media and we you know and it, we know that it, it translates like it, all the facebook stuff that the the way that people read and get their news and misinformation um and you know it's not but without accounting for our own culpability in that as a society, like the the rebel media of the rebel medias of the world, Sun News, which was where this guy got a lot of his his information and his, you know, spurring into uh, this sort of thinking. Um, yeah, we didn't really delve as far as we needed to into that and and hold platforms I, or individuals accountable for I, it. I feel like we delved more into the Humboldt like hockey players accident. I don't want to get Nora I don't. I don't. I don't disagree. With I don't that. disagree either. No, we did because even after the Toronto van incident, yeah, like yes, we were talking about incels. We were talking about um, who they are, what they do, but we didn't really expand it to talk about radicalization online in Canada, and you know, I've yet like and do a sole like an investigative piece mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm still. I'm. Where's that? There have been a couple like well done things. I think there were profile uh, some some profiles of the families, but it's 
not enough. And then, you know, as had been pointed out, the, the fundraising and support for those families was um, pretty lackluster. It, right. In, in terms of what they had. I faced. mean, we talked about that on this podcast, but uh, otherwise, I don't really see the expansion of coverage. This should have been a wake up call for this entire country, that mosque shooting. And instead of doing the investigative soul searching that we the fuck needed to do, it just kind of went away. Even the anniversary is barely mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, this is a major terrorist like attack. And had had those had those been white people, we wouldn't hear the fucking end of it. And that is what's just so unnerving. It's it's like we still have to suffer in silence in some sort of way. And, you know, I, I just I, I mm-hmm. and when it comes I mean, but to, there's a way to do it. And so uh, not to like compare tragedies. And I don't know if it's like super offside, but. So, you know, the the Polytechnic massacre that, like, gives us our, you know, data and violence against women, of the, you know, in December, and, and we commemorated Martha's Women, that took a lot of activism mm-hmm. and work from women's organizations mm-hmm. and um, the VAW sector and just, like, women in general kind of trying to make that a thing, and, and people work to make sure we don't forget that every year. And that's yeah. really important. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to do better um, at remembering those who died here in a, what is actually a very similar situation of someone committing an act of hate against, a, you know, in a place and targeting um, specific people and, and the loss of life uh, that resulted from that. I think we can, um, you know, maybe there is a, need to just at least like raise the consciousness like people's consciousness and mark that day mm-hmm. but i mean i also don't think it should just be a day that's marked right like, yeah uh, but i'm just i'm just saying like you know we we don't even have that and i think if you're doing any sort of like activism um or you're engaged on this issue maybe we should think about how to um you know honor those people and like you know what they died for essentially like not being in vain in terms of like a have a reminder of what hate crime has real cost, human costs. So why can't the women's march be engaged in, you know, partnering and helping with that? I mean, there's so much stuff to do. There's so much work to be done that I'm kind of, I'm kind of ticked off that, um, we have this nice little march in on the coldest day of the year. (laughs) And, um, and it seems like nothing gets done in between. There's well, things get done by other people all the time. No, I mean, like, by by that particular yeah. organization. Yeah. Yeah. And so what is your purpose? Again, there's just so much work to be done. There's so many people already doing it. There's, you know, like, and it's not hard to get into those spaces either because, you know, show up at a couple of events, talk to people, start getting to know the community. It seems like nobody wants to do that fucking work either. No, they want to recruit people who, to help them out who are doing that work. Exactly. And use up your time to to reinvent the wheel. Like, it's just silly to me. Yeah, so were you, either of you surprised that Ontario had the most instances of hate crimes? Nope. No, not at all. I mean... compared Even compared to, like, Quebec or... 
I mean, it's, I think <clears throat> I think we take for granted what like the like Ontario is actually. Like, I mean, Ontario is a huge and very, uh, you know, in population and diversity. And- yeah, we're just like demographics, like from different parts of the province, are really radical, liberal, and urban divide in Ontario is real. The like suburban urban divide is real. I think there's. Obviously, hate crimes is that's that happen in downtown Toronto too. Like, I don't think anyone is really immune, um, but like, it takes different forms, and I'm not surprised at the breadth in which hate crimes can present themselves across this country. I mean, and then you look at the Doug Ford getting elected. I mean, I'm not shocked at all. I don't think. I mean, I wasn't shocked. I don't think. I don't think, I think like about all Quebec those people has who voted min- for what's her face. In the uh, oh faith yeah. Goldie oh yeah the fifty thousand oh, well, people yeah yeah well I I don't think Quebec has a monopoly on racism mm-hmm. I'm just saying they're racist uh, oh they are in, in some more obviously like, like systematic one, ways yeah. right like the banning of religious exactly um, you know symbols and but and only and non christian ones sure exactly it's targeted and it's targeted at women as well and so it's a very um it's but it's it again it's just it's a bit more systemic but it's not um you know it's not the only way that that hate can present itself and i think a lot of people are very capable of of doing a lot of uh and it's harm. a different it's a different kind of racism too yeah. i think we need to stop thinking that um if if somebody isn't like actively trying to physically harm you then it's not racism like mm-hmm. it of course it is ontario is very structurally racist ontario is pretty racist actually where is it coming to think of it in canada so uh there is <laughs> no current like criminal offense in the criminal code for hate crimes um and there's a bunch of different crimes that can fall under that broad category should there be kind of a hate crime um Offense or sh- or do you think our normal criminal code like our offenses cover the gamut? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's uh, an ag- like at the very least it's an aggravating factor to other crimes, and I think it's sometimes that's already that is sort of contemplated. But um, I mean, I don't I don't know that necessarily. Like, I think there should there probably ought to be, but I don't think that necessarily we should rely on laws having a deterring or like additionally penalizing oh, effect. So I don't want to put all the uh, eggs in that basket either. I don't think it, that's like a necessarily worthwhile, but I don't think it can hurt to have an, a, an additional offense that you can level in these situations. But um, I don't, I would, that wouldn't necessarily give me added security either. No. And it's then also it gets... about enforcement and how it's treated. Yeah. And, and then like, how do you prove, I mean, rapes an offense, but it's not stopping police yeah. from like actually pursuing charges. Yeah. Right? So, and like, so. it's hard to prove like hatred being a motivating factor in terms of like, um, I, I'm assuming that some of these hate crimes are instances of like vandalism, right? Like when people have like yeah, somewhere yeah, um, you know, spray painted like swastikas mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so like yeah, if you've got like a whole like variation like of like a hate crime. Um, you'd have to have so many different other offenses possibly under that. Unlike trying to even like, like prove motivation that like that was a hate crime. If you're just like spray painting instead of being like, Oh, you could 
establish that. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just saying like it's, property is also a criminal offense anyway. Sure. But like, yeah. And like an instance with like, particularly with vandalism, like it's, it's easy to kind of talk about. Well, like, you can have different kinds of offenses. You can have a, um, an offense that doesn't require, uh, you can have a regulatory offense that is uh that doesn't have intention you could craft a completely different system you could apply the human rights code to those types of things and and you know i mean it and create a whole other scheme of assigning um some sort of penalty or or um you know by applying those principles i just yeah yeah i'm not sure erica what does a national strategy for like countering hate crime look like that's something else the Women's March could work on. <laughs> this is a different segment. I don't think we need to like give them this much air. Who the fuck is the Women's March? Okay, ask again. <laughs> Erica, what does a national strategy for countering hate crime look like? I would like to see a strategy created by people who actually work in the field, to be honest, who actually do the work, as Amy says. it would It would have to include police organizations in terms of their training in terms of their um, connection with the communities that are being targeted I mean a lot of this has to do the problem with this hate crimes issue is (sighs) the inclusion of law enforcement (laughs) I feel but you know they would obviously need to be included but law enforcement has not been traditional friends of the people who are most likely targeted by um, by these uh, by hate crimes. So, like for example, like what is it? Sixteen percent of hate all hate crimes in Canada were target targeted the black population, remaining the most common type of race or, race or ethnicity related hate crimes. Which basically, and that's a, a a community that police have historically not been good to. So I'm not sure how much sort of trust in police institutions and organizations that would actually be there to implement such said strategy. Well, that does it for This Week in Feminism. Stay tuned for Rent and Receipts. Now we're on to rent and receipts. This is where we each bring something to share with the others and then we uh, bitch about it, mostly. Um, so my rent and receipts this week is, uh, well, let me just paint a picture for you. So now we're in the era where all m- media companies are launching their own streaming services. We've got Netflix. We've got Amazon Prime, Disney's coming up with one, um, which will bring in all the Disney properties. Um, We've got streaming sports channels. And oh, now, now we are so lucky. Fox News is launching its own subscription-driven online video channel called Uh, Fox Nation. Oh, good Lord. And for $5.99 per month, you'll be able to have access to this. Um, <laughs> no one fucking asked for this shit. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, 
So uh, Fox Nation appears to have a whole bunch of brand new, fresh content. Um, but uh, the reality is it's a bunch of, you know, a lot of old far-right documentaries uh, that have titles like The Great Food Stamp Binge and United Nations Blood Money, which have already previously aired on Fox News um, as old as 10 years ago. Um, but don't worry. Do not worry. If you've ever wondered what uh, other things you could get on here, well, let me tell you. Um, Steve Ducey is going to have a cooking program, and you can cook with him. Um, that's that's cool. You can find out what he likes to cook. Um, there's going to be uh, a former White House press secretary uh, having uh, a, th- a show called Book Club. Um, so that's cool. Um, there's going to be another show by Stuart Varney, who's going to continue pushing the Trump agenda. And, uh, there's also going to be a show dedicated to Eric Trump. The whole thing. Is that the blonde kid? Yeah. The blonde son? Yeah. Why? I I don't know. Like. What? I don't know. I don't know. He's the forgotten son, like, for a reason. Yeah. Why are you trying to make him happen? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyways, cooking with Steve Ducey. <laughs> Douchey. <laughs> Sounds awful. And uh, the uh, owner of Fox News was like, well, people will be interested in this because we have, you know, personalities that have fans. We are creating stars and they've got a fan base whereas other networks like msnbc they just have personalities and people just watch them because that's what they watch at like nine o'clock no like this is a very bad idea it sounds awful none of the shows sound good i still like i'm sorry i the the last thing i want to do is watch like rachel maddow cook something yeah i was just about to say i don't care what rachel maddow eats or if she can cook to be honest if i wanted to watch a cooking show i'd watch the cooking the food network or i'd watch the cooking segment of i don't know some daytime show that i don't know because i have i'm at work i have no idea and i also don't have a tv um but like ellen no oprah used to have cooking i guess right yeah that was a thing i don't know Back in the day? Yeah, it's like old school morning. I know the social The social has some. Because I watch the social. Listen. I'm sorry. Like, I just follow Lainey Gossip. I, I, yeah, that's true. But I can't with the social. I really just can't. No, but like they have cooking segments. Like if I cared, I'd watch Martha Stewart. Mm-hmm. Like I'd watch someone who is an expert in this field and not Steve Ducey. Who's, who's bringing Steve on, Ducey? I don't know. Some personality on Fox. Okay, so here here's the thing. I Fox makes its money on outrage. So I'm like, where's the outrage in him cooking stuff? It's because conservatives just have nowhere they can watch TV without being subjected to the liberal agenda. I still don't understand why he's I cooking. Know. I don't <laughs> I still I'm like I'm like, is he like, is he cooking to fling food at migrants? Like, what's he doing? I don't know. Because I feel like that would be a Fox News show. (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. No, it, like I don't put anything after an administration, tear grasses, you know, people mm-hmm. trying to cross the border. I put nothing past them. Sure. I mean, I put nothing past them after the whole cages thing. But still, you know what I mean? I I just. What else is there? Oh, I don't know. They didn't highlight all of the shows. Is like Tommy Lahren. I think a she show? Tommy Lahren has a show. Okay. I yeah, I don't get it. Like I get it, but I don't get the execution. Amy, I know that you're a big TV fan. Will you be subscribing to Fox Nation? Oh sure, why not? <laughs> I'll stay on my credit card bill for months and months and months, and I'll forget that it's there. And it's my Prime subscription. I really got to cancel that. <laughs> undermining my critique of Amazon. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, Erica, what do you got? So this week um, is the 50th anniversary of Shirley Chisholm becoming the first black woman ever elected to the House of Representatives. So she was elected in New York's 12th district. And um, she ran as a Democrat and became, in 1972, she also became the first black woman candidate for a major party's nomination for president of the United States. And yeah, so this matters considering that we've seen um, in recent times in the midterms, an, an election of a whole lot of um, women of color. And I, when I say a lot, that's relative. Um, and so I guess I just want to highlight one of the pioneers. So yesterday, November 30th, so Friday, she would have been 94 years old. And she had done a lot in terms of... Um, expanding the food pro- the food stamp program. Um, she had she had a critical role in creating the sup- the special supplementary, sorry, the special supplemental nutrition program for women. Food WIC. stamps. WIC is what I'm talking about. Oh, WIC. Oh, yeah. not SNAP. No, not SNAP. WIC. So, women, infants, and children program. Cool. And she did some stuff for veterans and basically like expanded um, programs to help inner city people, especially the poor and hungry and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, she's one of those pioneering women who doesn't get um, really recognized that much until... Um, black feminists really have really done the work to bring her sort of into the light and bring her legacy to the forefront. And I just wanted to spend this rent and receipts remembering one of the pioneering women in elect po- in in politics, and that um, I'm not going to wait till Black History Month to talk about her. Mm-hmm. So yeah, here here, awesome, very cool. Good. Um, Okay, so for mine, I wanted to um, talk about uh, CNN kind of being terrible uh, yet again. Um, This week, 
uh, CNN Fire Day uh, commentator who um, Mark Lamont Hill, who comments on mostly social justice issues. Um, he's a prof. He also hosts uh, BET News, um, and he's an author and an activist. And he spoke at the UN this week. Uh, it was the um, I guess marking the uh, Universal Declaration on Human Rights. It was also the Day of International Solidarity with Palestinian People. And he spoke at that talking about uh, the sort of the hypocrisy of Western nations and allowing uh, what happens to Palestinian people uh, carry on and, and, and some of the, the human rights uh, issues in Palestine. Um, and I've gathered that he's done a lot of work uh, on the on the issue or is like very um, well informed on it, has visited Palestine, has like taken trips and and uh, so he's he, in his speech, he talks about how um, there's a need to return to um, uh, the pre-1967 borders and give full rights to Palestinian citizens in Israel, where that's not the case. Um, there, there's a lack of citizenship rights on the Israeli side. And he's, he's, in fact, someone who believes in a one-state solution, which is the idea that Israel... It should exist, but should exist as a fully democratic uh, country where Palestinians have full citizenship rights alongside Israelis. Um, it's a view that's shared by, frankly, a lot of people, especially um, academics and activists um, who are close to it. It's gaining traction um, in Palestine and in Israel. Um, but for some reason in the West, uh, from the perspective of CNN, it's anti-Semitic to say that you think that Israel should be a democratic state with not a religious state, um, not a religious state first and foremost in the way that it is. And so um, anyway, so he was fired from CNN as a commentator for making that speech at the UN. Which is just, I mean, we can get into more about what, what this speech means and how significant, you know, it, it is. And it, I think it's like such an important viewpoint. Um, you know, he, he, he's extremely well informed um, and is making like a very impassioned plea. I actually was kind of like moved when I watched the this, this speech itself. Um, and, you know, and I think it's it's coming from such a place of like, heart and compassion to take that perspective on a on a one state um uh, approach uh and yeah it's just wild that cnn would one think that that's anti-semitic which it's absolutely not and there have been a lot of uh things written by um israelis and and uh jewish commentators about why that's absolutely not the case and not in our name are you gonna like start invoking um, this because you know this is an excuse but for some reason in the west that view has really taken traction um, I think the idea of anti-semitism has been um, and racism in general has been flipped in this way intentionally by uh, the powers that be of certain uh, like pro-right pro-israeli right-wing movements to silence the left because an invocation of racism and anti-semitism is like considered you know the end all be all of, of conversations and and it's being used in this way to actually suppress rights and and perpetuate oppressive policies but like here's cnn with commentators who are talking about you know legitimizing the miss like you know the killing of black people in the u.s the caging of of migrant children like all of this and like to say i'm sure they're uh, increasingly more and more flagrant things for the benefit of of 
you know, playing devil's advocate or presenting the the view of the right in the U.S. and yet someone making this this very well reasoned per- perspective, critical view of uh, of Israeli, but also UN policy, uh, not UN policy, but partially the UN policy, which supports a two state solution, and American policy is suddenly deemed to be you know too extreme and can't be on the cnn payroll it's wild that's so crazy because they let jeffrey lord say on cnn for fucking ever before they fired him oh it's he could say whatever the fuck he wanted it's terrible that was like not even based in reality and fact yeah just as a news organizer whereas like this is (laughs) like the standard is just constantly evolving with cnn they need to get it together well and the exceptionalism on the question of palestine is just such bullshit that you can't uh you can speak for so many other issues, but once you take a, an opinion on that, no matter uh, how well reasoned and informed, it you know, it's it's really disheartening. Um, I saw that tw- I saw that on Twitter, and um, I don't know. I I think CNN. CNN is very it's very contradictory of a of an organization it's one of those places that seems to want to tell real stories but it's too corporate to do that you know what I mean this this seems like a very corporate response it's like especially weeks after um oh tree of of life life. sorry So especially like weeks after the Tree of Life, um, I'll say it, massacre, like I think that um, its reaction is very corporate and the host is a is a black male. And, you know, they don't they don't get to say, oops, I'm sorry or not even I'm sorry. But, you know, it's it's amazing to me. You bring up Jeffrey Lord for example. And it's amazing to me some of the shits he said. And he gets re- invited back. Like, he gets mm-hmm. to keep his job. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think it's a court report response. I think this is the response of most people in the West. Our conversation about the conflict is really ignorant. And that's because there is, intre- like, pa- certain power interests have a gain by keeping folks thinking that the conflict is, in uh, that it's folks are too entrenched that it is not uh something that anyone should opine on that it's too complex um and that you know these are you know factions that have been warring uh you know since biblical times which is all of that is bullshit it is a power struggle over land it is not any different but the u.s has a has a vested interest in maintaining a strategic military alliance with israel and that like that's what this is about. And so, you know, the but the conversation in the West is a lot further than behind than where it is in Israel and Palestine, where people are actually there. There is far more breath, a breadth of opinion on the conflict than there is allowed to be here. And so I don't think it's a corporate response. I don't think it's anything to do with Tree of Life. I think those are just ways that people try to ju- justify their actions after the fact. There are a lot of folks who you know have other types of vested interest in ensuring that the conflict um stays the way that it is and that's that's what it's about yeah there's no reason why we can't have an educated nuanced discussion about it but we can't 
even yeah. raise a exactly. different That's the opinion. Thing. Yeah, you can't even you can't even yeah. bother. But, yeah, and it's like who who how can you even say that you have a social justice commentator on CNN that they can't even speak truth to power? On top of that, like that, go fuck yourselves. Yeah. Well, that does it for this week. Um, get social with us. Follow us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook slash Bad and B Podcast, and email us mostly just love notes. Uh, bad and be pod at gmail.com. Bye. 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 Bye.